please note that Sarah is speaking to us in a private capacity and not on behalf of Operation Vulundlela. This morning's Coffee with the Editor, I'm joined by Sarah Truen, who is an independent regulatory economist with deep expertise in the South African railway sector. At present, she's involved in developing a roadmap for structural reform of the sector on behalf of Operation Vulundlela, an initiative driven by the South African presidency and supported by National Treasury. Sarah, I think let's start with where we are at from a rail perspective. Perhaps provide a snapshot. Much has happened, but we haven't really gone anywhere. Or that's how it feels. Generally speaking, I'm usually an optimist when it comes to rail in Africa and, of course, South Africa. But I'm feeling that what the president yeah. is coordinating with respect to Operation uh, Wollandlela and the railway sector is just not moving fast enough. Um, in your mind, what are the key constraints? And like really surely when the announcement was made um, in terms of third party access and concessions, that everybody should have been on the same page? What is often not fully appreciated is the extent of the complexity here, that it is very, very difficult to really allow access on in network economies. And I think, you know, if you think about the previous time, you know, the the, the probably the, the previous time that South Africa has tried to do something similar is around local loop unbundling and telecoms. You know, the complexity there defeated the regulator. Um, because you're talking about, you know, multiple points of engagement on a, a on a network and mm. trying to regulate things that are complex in terms of of network management, in terms of you know the practicalities of really physically, you know, whose equipment is allowed where, uh, how you you know what are you allowed to do, how do you maintain network stability? These are very complex interfaces so I, I understand that there's frustration from industry side because you you, you know that's there's obviously the rail sector there's so much potential there's so much commercial opportunity and there have been all these pronouncements made when you get into this from a regulatory side of you know how do we go in how do we actually facilitate competition allow people to actually come on and operate on the rail network and really thrive and run efficient operations on well-maintained infrastructure, you know, manage potential conflicts between operators who want to access the same parts of the network, facilitate private sector investment. And in it, it does get very complicated very quickly, that, mm. that level playing field, you know, the creation of a level playing field making sure that as government you can play a proper um, referee role mm. uh, without really interfering. So, uh, I mean, I, I obviously I'm, I'm, I'm telling you my perspective and I'm on the perspective of trying to get this thing to work and it's it's very complicated. So, <laughs> um, so obviously I'm... I'm, I'm um, I'm supporting my own position here to some extent. I think it's really, this is a very complex sector. We've got one of the biggest rail networks in the world. This is a very big ship to try and turn. Uh, we are making progress. A lot of it's been behind the scenes. Hopefully soon, a lot of it will sort of come into the public arena um, with the publication of the roadmap, which hopefully is going to happen 
fairly soon and then we can start really engaging and doing the difficult work. You bring up the roadmap and that's quite important. So I think that's something that as industry waiting for. We have the policy kind of in place, so like the National Railway Policy. Transnet, and I've alluded to this before in, in, in different formats, that Transnet went out to tender to figure out their operational separation and, and their stuff going forward. The Department of Transport has gone out to tender for the framework in terms of the economic regulator. What are like the next steps? And, and uh, you mentioned something along the lines of the economic regulator bill. So maybe contextualize all of that for me. Maybe let's start with the rail policy because that sort of sets the framework here. So the key thing with the rail policy is that their intention is to introduce competition to resolve the efficiency issues and the volume issues in the sector and to really try and, and shift freight Uh, from road onto rail. So in order to do that, you need to have vertical separation of the infrastructure manager. So to split Transnet down into infrastructure versus operations. And then you also need to have a referee, which is the transport economic regulator, which is going to be introduced by the economic regulation of transport bill. So the economic regulation of transport bill is currently before the National Council of Provinces. It's being um, prioritized. Hopefully we're talking about, about the bill being passed in the next year, maybe sooner, at which point the way the bill works is that it covers aviation, ports, railways, and road. And it covers On implementation, it covers any area of those sectors which has previously been subject to economic regulation. So that doesn't actually include rail to start off with. But then the bill has a mechanism in it where you can go in and do basically what is equivalent to a competition commission market inquiry or can in fact be a competition commission market inquiry. And from that, you can make a finding on a sector like rail to say that, okay, now there are problems in the competitive structure of this market and regulation is needed. What needs to start happening within the next year or so is that research, or hopefully with, you know, within the next three months that research starts of, mm-hmm. of doing the market inquiry to try and extend um, the scope of the regulator to rail because the intention is to regulate rail. So that is a big part of it. At Simultaneously, as the legislation has been expedited, draft subsidiary regulation is being drawn up to try and like really, um, you know, give the regulator the the kind of day-to-day tools around how to run processes and how to price regulate and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So that's been drafted and needs to be workshopped. This market inquiry process needs to happen. What has been put in place between... uh, Department of Transport, Department of Public Enterprises and National Treasury is an interministerial committee called the Interim Rail Economic Regulation Committee or Capacity as one of the two. Anyway, the the IREC is the short, which is an attempt to start developing regulatory capacity in rail. Um, So I've been involved in that, doing research for that for a couple of years and also now through Operation Wollandlela, I'm involved in the IREC. They've uh, appointed independent regulatory specialists. So you've got um, Etel Tellier, who is the chairperson of the IREC, who uh, 
uh, used to be the gas regulator at NERSA, who's been appointed there, and starting to do the research to flesh out things like, um, you know, what would the price regulation mechanism be for rail? So that the research, the blog that, that I've done that you've posted yes. is based on research yes. that I did for, for the IREC, trying to come up with a regulatory, you know, the, the, the initial framework for price regulation of of access to the rail network. Talking about that leads me in, into thinking exactly about that that blog. You had some interesting thoughts on how differentiation should work. Can you expand on this? Let me know how how this will impact competitiveness. Okay, so price regulation in rail is is an interesting one because stop me if I get too far into the bushes in terms of economic theory. But basic economic theory says that you maximize efficiency when you set price equal to marginal cost. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the cost of producing the last unit is, is where you should set price and then you'll have an efficient outcome, which doesn't work in very high fixed cost industries like rail. So rail, you, you, know, you spend billions on infrastructure, but once the infrastructure is built, the actual operating costs of running a train down the line are, are much lower. And yeah. those, are, those are your marginal costs. So if you set price equal to marginal cost in rail, you're never going to cover the cost of infrastructure. You know, in the EU, for example, the guidance is that um, the EU encourages member states to, to pay for the infrastructure themselves and then to set the access price to the network at the marginal cost which is great, you know, from an efficiency uh, maximizing point of view, but it doesn't doesn't really help you if you're in a situation where, you know, the state can't afford to do that. So if you're in a position where, like South Africa is, where you can't set access price at marginal cost, you have to set it high enough to cover the fixed cost of the infrastructure. Then you're in a position where, you know, you're in a second best outcome. And then you have to find a way of of structuring prices that does the least damage to economic efficiency. And then you start getting into a situation where you go, okay, rail, what's really important for the economic sustainability of rail? And what's really important for the economic sustainability of rail is volume, is moving large volumes. Because if you move large volumes on a piece of line, then you've got lots of customers and you can spread the cost of the fixed network really widely. Everybody is is only taking a small share of the fixed cost of the infrastructure. But your problem, you're, you're trying to maximize volume. You have to set prices high enough to cover fixed costs. And when you do that, you're going to push people onto road. The people that you're going to push onto road first are the marginal customers, the people you know that are moving containers between Durban and, and Gauteng, for example, who will put their freight on rail if it's fairly cheap. So the price differentiation argument, okay, let me try and like just do this in a simple way. So, you know, if you think about like tax policy, you know how we we um, we tax um, cigarettes and alcohol, really high tax rates. And part of the reason we do that is because we don't like cigarettes and alcohol. But uh, the other reason that we do it is because demand for cigarettes and alcohol is fairly inelastic. So basically, you can you can set the price really high for cigarettes and alcohol, and people will still buy basically the same amount. When demand is inelastic, 
higher prices don't distort volumes as much. So the insight here is that if you price differentiate and you charge the people who have inelastic demand more than the people who have elastic demand, you get lo- less distortion and volume. And that's typically called Ramsey pricing. The Ramsey was the guy who came up with this theory. So what you want to do in Ramsey pricing is you want to identify the customers who are not going to move and you want to charge them a higher proportion of fixed costs. Charge a much smaller proportion of fixed costs to the people who are elastic. The instinctive reaction that people usually have to price differentiation is that, you know, that's unfair. Why should that guy get a cheaper price than me? So I really, I thought it was quite important to try and, you know, start talking about this and communicating the goal here. And the reason that that you do this and the reason why in rail it's typically not going to be unfair in its, in its consequences is firstly because you're going to have a price regulator who's going to be setting a maximum price to make sure that people aren't being uh, excessively exploited, that you're not going to get really excessive pricing coming through. Secondly, because if you are using a piece of infrastructure, you're the price inelastic customer, everybody else has been pushed off the rail and you're covering the cost of that fixed infrastructure on your own. It's actually in your interest to let somebody else come in at a cheaper price because even if they come in at a cheaper price, they're not paying as much of you as you, but they are covering a little bit of the cost of the fixed infrastructure you're not on your own covering the cost of the fixed infrastructure anymore. And there are actually benefits to you of allowing somebody else onto the network at a cheaper price, given that there's not congestion and so on and so forth and and there are various preconditions there. But net-net, you do end up with it being beneficial even for the price inelastic customer who's been charged more to actually have that, that happen. Um, and then you brought up the question of subsidization. There is an outstanding question of subsidization here. So there are parts of the South African rail network that are, you know, if you get your price differentiation argument right, if you manage to attract on the price elastic customers, um, you get volumes up and that where, you know, you're going to have m- most of the network being commercially sustainable long term. Um, that you can actually get enough people on the line to pay for the line. The issue is the low density parts of the network. Parts of the network where, you know, you've got an important customer um, on rail. If you push them off rail, you're going to destroy the road network. But that important rail customer isn't doing big enough volumes to actually commercially make that line commercially feasible. Then there is an outstanding question around um, you know, the obvious logical thing to do is to subsidize mm. um, because you know, apart from anything else, you're going to be subsidizing the road network for the damage done to the road network um, if you don't subsidize the rail network. Um, and what we're hoping to, to, to do is to really try and move towards a more logical framework for subsidization of those low density lines so that that is something that we know how to do as a country and that we you know that that's in the policy toolbox that's in the problem solving toolbox mm. so that we don't end up with potentially illogical outcomes on that low density lines so i think some of those low density lines would be like the branch lines 
bringing yeah. brand to to potential customers and perhaps restoring you know some of the links that that have been destroyed have been left to ruin because those customers have moved to road but when we talk about road and i'm sure you've taken a trip to to durban by car and also yeah. aria i think mentioned this in one of their articles was that there's about 58 million tons that could be moved back to rail yeah. however these truck transporters are not paying necessarily for the road infrastructure it was there it was available it's fairly people benign really where is the attractiveness to get it back to rail in line with with that competitive pricing what's going to be that hook if I put on, you know, sort of a hypothetical hat, I think of, you know, as a, you know, South Africa as a, as a whole. Thank God for road, <laughs> because the rail sector is in crisis. And if we didn't have road transporters, you know, where would we be? Yeah. Um, where who would be moving the freight? And I don't think we can, we can't have a heavy-handed approach at this point with the performance problems in rail of trying to move freight from road to rail. We need to lead with an efficiency improvement. We need to prove that rail, you know, can actually move freight efficiently and start off with the the, the shift being driven by efficiency. You know, basically that is the policy priority. As it stands, I don't think we're, you know, we're, we're talking at all about, um, about more aggressive means of trying to shift freight from, from road to rail. Those are policy questions that, you know, hopefully we resolve the efficiency issues and then in, you know, three to five to ten years' time we can talk about, you know, what else needs to be done to try and make that shift even more aggressively. But I think the initial the initial objective really be is to try and, and start shifting the first tranche shall we say, of road freight onto rail just because we improve the efficiency and the performance of rail. And I think that's really the priority. What do we need to do to really get everybody aligned to this this point of operational efficiencies, getting those third-party, you know, private operators on board whilst we start finding the points that will allow us to scale up? It's quite frustrating, really. So for me, the the central insight here is that there's no one thing that you can do that's just going to unlock the sector. There's a whole bunch of things that need to be done. You know, there are a whole bunch of things that are necessary and none of them are, are individually sufficient to unlock the sector. So, you know, it's about, it's about vertical separation at Transnet. It's about implementing the regulator. It's about getting the regulator to have jurisdiction and following through with all those, you know, network statement and so on and so forth. And I think the thing that I'm worried about is is capacity and stamina. That to me, this is a two to three year program of intense work and implementation. If we all lose patience a year in and go, well, this is a waste of time, then then it's going to be a disaster. <laughs> we, we actually need to put our heads down and, you know, mostly the goal here is that the state needs to put their heads down and, and you know, come up with these regulatory mechanisms and make sure that the, the investment, uh, you know, environment for 
rolling stock and branch lines and so on is, you know, that the investment environment is facilitate private sector engagement and that, and that, you know, we solve the operational crisis and the efficiency crisis and that. But there's also, you know, that I'm worried that the private sector is going to lose patience halfway during a process. This is a two to three year process from where we are now until and two to three years we have hopefully a staffed regulator we have a proper network statement we have a little bit of experience on the first couple of uh, third-party access agreements hopefully in two to three years somebody has actually bought some new rolling stock and they're starting to be delivered hopefully somebody has um, you know we've managed to facilitate um, private sector investments on on branch lines through various regulated mechanisms and and we're starting to to really uh, to excuse the pun we're starting to get some traction going (laughs) (laughs) you know in a year's time we're likely still to all be very frustrated and that's the problem because we're I don't want to use the word apathy but I think I think industry is already frustrated. When these announcements were made, in my view, everybody got all excited and the understanding was that everybody was on the same page, not that we're still inventing the wheel and trying to get to a point. And you raised an interesting thing about somebody hopefully buying new rolling stock. Those investments won't happen until there is not just the policy certainty, but things are before our eyes materializing. One of the things that that you mentioned in your paper was around the risks. And I'd just be interested to know in your mind what those risks are with third parties. You know, from my reading of international um, precedent, like a lot of the the sort of day-to-day nitty-gritty around really sort of understanding what your operating environment is going to be as a as a you know somebody seeking access to a vertically separated network is really embodied in the institution of the the, the network statement. So that you, you know, you have this living document, which is also to some extent a living institution where you've got governance systems in place around how it's changed you've got a an understood consultation mechanism around how it's formulated and changed Um, you've got well understood procedures in place around you know how um how network maintenance is scheduled and the implication that that has on your ability to access your slot and how you know who takes the blame in an accident and and you know what your sort of liability is for mm. if your train is is derailed and and how that process is set up and you've got precedent and all this stuff other people have already fought the first fight and and established what the legal precedent is and how stuff is managed that is a large part of what now needs to happen to really allow people to understand what their investment risks are. This third-party um, RFP that Transnet put out in April of last year, they did come up with, with the beginnings of a network statement, but they kept it confidential at the time. So we, you know, that hasn't gone into the public arena. That now needs to, as the infrastructure manager gets separated out from Transnet, and I know 
they they have plans in this regard to to come up with with a, a public version of the network statement that needs to go into the into the market and then you start seeing things like okay where are the speed restrictions where have the loops been spiked so you can't that it's it's operating as a single conveyor belt and you can't actually where trains can't pass each other and you start really seeing what the capacity issues are and what the the operating restrictions are oh. I think having that in public as a public document is also then potentially a very powerful mechanism for improving the efficiency of the sector. Because once that's in a public document, Transnet is then showing its homework. <laughs> you can start having feedback loops in terms of industry saying to, to Transnet, you know, why are you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Uh, where is this innovation that you that you need to be doing and, you know, what's the timeline and everything. So a lot of, of that can also be those kind of feedback loops can be institutionalized in the network statement. And you can start then figuring out what the efficiency is, what you're actually able to offer your, your freight customer. And then, you know, it's going to be a matter of trying to, to get the first initial pilot cases on that RFP that was issued last year, they, they are in negotiations with the company that's been awarded to. Um, as far as I know, they, they're still quite away a from, from operationalizing that. There are going to be learnings from that. Hmm. Hopefully um, from next year, when there's a network statement in place um, and the next stage of, of open access starts, we can start, you know, really entrenching those learnings and have them happen in, in a more public arena so that everybody can learn from them simultaneously. And yeah, hopefully we get to a point where we can start triggering investment. And part of that is going to be coming up with longer term access agreements for people who invest. So I think the long term outcome is probably going to be something that looks similar to the access arrangements in the EU where you do have an annual timetabling arrangement and that your slots are allocated annually. In that annual timetabling framework, there is still, I mean, even in the EU, there's, there's allowance for what they call a framework agreement uh, where you have a longer-term access arrangement that is often linked to the need for investment certainty yeah. in order to unlock the longer term you know if you're talking about taking 10 years to pay off railing stock you need to there needs to be the possibility of a 10 year access agreement on the table to allow that investment to happen so that needs to to be part of this first round that we're probably going to have to sign a lot of of longer term access agreements in the first sort of 10 years of open access and then once you get to a point where a lot of people have, you know, they've paid off their rolling stock and they're just buying a little bit of additional rolling stock here and there, and everybody's comfortable with the way the access system works and everybody knows what their rights are and what their legal recourse is if they get denied a slot and, you know, all that sort of precedent's been worked out on that. I think then you'll probably end up with most of the market being on, on an annual um, timetabling framework, but it, it's going to take a while to get there, in my opinion. Sarah, thank you, thank you very much. <laughs>